Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to a journey of transformation empowerment. You're listening to Antonio T. Smith Jr. Where ideas ignite, change, and possibilities are endless. Before we dive into today's episode, we have something special for our listeners. Today's podcast is brought to you by a groundbreaking book that's reshaping the conversation around Black economic empowerment. It's Resegregation, Volume 1. The Power Matrix. A master plan for Black group economics with wealth creation. Authored by visionary Antonio T. Smith, Jr. Antonio isn't just an author. He's a former top-secret combat special operations intelligence sergeant turned millionaire. His life work championed the economic autonomy and wealth creation within black communities. In this seminal work, dedicated to teachings of Dr. Claude Anderson, Antonio outlines a comprehensive blueprint covering critical sectors like finance, technology, manufacturing, and more. He blends military discipline with acute understanding of systematic disparity. This isn't just a book. It's a movement. A call to action to create lasting wealth and reshaping the economic narrative. Antonio's vision is clear. Drive a significant shift toward black ownership and control. Listeners, if you've ever wondered about innovative strategies for wealth creation or how technological transformation can uplift the black communities, then this book is for you. Join Antonio Smith Jr. on the transformative journey. Pick up your copy of The Resegregation Volume 1, The Power Matrix, today and be a part of the reshaping future. Now, let's dive into the episode and explore the possibilities that await us. There's one or two key points in this seminar that I have stressed thousands of times. It's vitally important that you follow them properly. On page 26 in your action planner, it's suggested that you make a written description of the person you are about to become. I couldn't stress this enough. I've pointed that there's two pages in this book that can literally change your life. This is the first one. Now, what I want to suggest you do, it may seem foolish, it may seem like a fantasy, but I can assure you it works. I want you to stop and think of exactly how you would like to be. 
the type of person you really want to be. Write it in as much detail as possible on page 26 and write it in the present tense. You may draw on different people that you admire and respect as role models that you might want to emulate this part or that part of their personality. But make this in as much detail as possible in the present tense. Begin by writing, I am so happy that I am, and then describe the person you truly want to become in as much detail as possible. Don't go any further until that part of this exercise book is filled in. Don't spend five seconds wondering how you're going to become this person. Just make it very clear the person you want to become. We'll tell you later on how to execute the image. When you have that completed, turn your tape back on and John Canary is going to introduce you to a concept of how this great power within us takes over and does what we want. I always like to kind of get into this lesson with a, uh, with a particular idea because, uh, you know, we're into something that make a lot of people feel uncomfortable. And just to make sure that we're all in the same chapter here, we're over on page 27 where it states, let go and let God. You know, it's a cute little story about Billy and Johnny. Uh, they, were, uh, they were having a little bit of trouble in town on an ongoing basis. And uh, mom didn't know quite how to handle this. Dad had been gone for years. And uh, if something went wrong, these kids would hide in the basement because they would get blamed for it, whether they were involved in the activity or not. Well, mom took a run down to the minister there, brought Billy and Johnny with her. And she walked in. She said, you know, Reverend, I don't know quite what to do. Uh, these two boys are constantly in trouble. And every time uh, something goes wrong, they get blamed for it. And I don't know quite how to handle it. Well, he said, listen, Mom, you, you just go on, on home there. I'm going to take care of this situation right now. And the way she went, he said, now, Billy, I want you to sit in the hallway here in that chair. And Johnny, I want you in my office. Well, Johnny got in there and he sat him in that chair and the old reverend there, he just sat back in that big old oak desk. And he looked down and he said, now, Johnny, we're going to start with some questions. And the first one is, where is God? Well, Johnny just sat up on that chair there, started to vibrate, you know, in a state of confusion. Didn't know quite what to do. Blood vessels started to dilate. And he's trying to get a word out. He said, come on, Johnny, right now, where's God? Well, he started to spit, stamp and stutter, whatever the case might be. And he said, Johnny, this is the last time I'm going to ask you, where's God? Well, Johnny just up off that chair and beat it down the hallway, put on the brakes, grabbed Billy, said, Billy, we got to get out of here. God's missing and they're going to blame that one on us too. <laughs> In this marvelous book that everyone has in their kit, when you pick up and you read this chapter, I want you to keep something in mind. That for 8,000 years, all of the great thinkers, they have all disagreed with one another on many, many different things. But you know, there was only one thing that they were in complete and unanimous agreement with, just one. That there is a power in this universe. And they say that this power, that it animates, it penetrates, and it motivates the entire cosmos. Now, not too long ago on a TV show, Madame O'Hare was being interviewed by Phil Donahue. 
And Donnie, who, she's the lady who's the head of the atheist movement. And she denied the existence of any power in this universe. But one night she was being interviewed by Dick Cavett. And Dick Cavett, you see, he didn't get emotionally involved in the idea. He stopped and he started to think. And he was able to reason with her without him losing control. And she said the only good thing about believing in a power is that you get a lot of holidays. <laughs> and Dick Cavett said to her, you get a holiday every single year as all atheists do. And she said, when is that? And he said, on April the 1st. <laughs> now, if you were to go to the Ark of Apollo at Delphi, you'll see just two words inscribed over that Ark at Delphi. And those two words go like this. It said, know, know thyself. But what do we really know about us and what this power is that animates, flows through us, flows with us? I mean, that really is what we are all about. This power that Bob referred to so much yesterday as spirit. Now, to properly do this exercise, we're going to have to define or try or attempt to define this power. But you see, if, the, if you define something, then you place limits on it. So you see, the way we're going to define it will not limit it. As a matter of fact, it will show that it is unlimited and that it is infinite. In a marvelous book that I brought out here with me this morning called Your Invisible Power, Genevieve Biran, I think, put it together well in this book when she said, to get good results in our life, we must properly understand our relationship to this great impersonal power. Now think about what she said. If we are going to get, she said, the kind of results that we want, we are going to have to understand our relationship to this here great, all-encompassing, this great impersonal power. Now she said, this power is intelligent. You and I, we are intelligent. But she said, it is these two intelligences working together that determine the kind of results that we get. Well then, where do we go to find out a little bit more about this power? You see, if you examine it, there's 178 different names to describe it. I mean, we got Baha'i, Vishnu, Krishna, Muhammad, Buddha. And, and the list goes on and on and on. Rather than talk about the name, why don't we try to define the activity to see how it operates to, with, and through us? Now, you see, if I were in the United States today, and those, the people that are here from the U.S., you check this out with them. If I were to ask them if they've paid their hydro bill, what kind of response do you think I'm going to get, Brian? They would think they paid their water bill or something. But you see, you know what I mean by hydro bill. But they're not sure what I mean by hydro bill. But isn't it really the very same power? Yes, no. It's the very same power. Well, you see, this power that we're talking about, rather than try to define its name, let's see if we can define the activity. 
Now, if you're going to find out what it is, you're going to have to go to two sources of reference, the only two that are available. And one is science, and the other is theology. They are the only two sources of reference we can go to if we're going to try to find out anything. Now, you'll find this in the chapter on Let Go and Let God in that book, and I'd suggest that you read it and reread it until you not only gain an intellectual comprehension, but until you can gain what is called an inner spiritual emotional intelligence. You see, the individual that works only with intellectual intelligence, they're really not going to accomplish a whole lot. But the individual that can work with that inner emotional or spiritual intelligence, that individual open themselves up to unlimited possibilities. So if we're going to define this power, and we were to go to the scientists and say, what is this power that animates, penetrates, and motivates the cosmos? Why can I walk and talk? What keeps that wall standing? What about night and day? Why is there such order in these cosmos? How do I know where there's a certain star going to be a thousand years from now and time it within a fraction of a second? Well, the scientist will tell you there is a power that animates the cosmos, and the scientist will say, he will call, or she will call that power, energy. That's the name they use to describe this activity. Now, if you ask, well, what is energy? This is the only thing the scientist can tell you. And remember, the word science means to know. It means organized knowledge. Well, then ask, what is energy? And this is the only thing science can tell you. That energy just is. It is neither created nor destroyed. It is the cause and effect of itself. And it is 100% evenly present in all places at all times. Doesn't that mean right in here, Shirley? Doesn't that mean right in here, Leslie? All places at all times. It didn't say 20% in Scarborough, 50% in Tennessee. 100% evenly present in all places at all times is almighty and is all powerful. Well, that's fine. You may say, well, I choose not to believe that. Well, you're entitled to believe what you want. But remember this, if you don't believe in something, you're going to fall for anything. So we can cross that one out if you like, but some of you will not. Well, that only leaves you one place left to go. And if you were to go over to theology, and what does theology mean? Well, theology just means one thing, the study of God, at least in this part of the world. In another part, it may be Baha'i, Vishnu, Krishna, Muhammad, Buddha, again, it goes on and on and on the list. But if you were to ask the theologian, I just left the scientist, I'm trying to find out, what is this power that animates, penetrates, and motivates the cosmos? Say, I, I just left down there, and, and I'm trying to find out a little bit about this power. I mean, you've been told that if you do this, thus, and so, you're going to win, that you have great potential. Have you ever been told that, John? Have you ever been told, honey, if, we, if, if you change your attitude, we'd get along better? And, and if you change your attitude, you could use your potential and you could be more effective? Have you ever been told that, Jim? On a daily basis, sure you have. <laughs> but you see, the scientist, I went, to, I went to this scientist and they told me something about this energy. Now you go over to the other side and you ask the theologian. And the theologian will say, yes, there is a power in this universe that keeps everything in working order. 
But we have a name for the power in this part of the world. What do they call? What is the name they use in this part of the world? So you see, we take that symbol and we put it on the board and then we ask the theologian, well, tell me, what is, who is, what do you mean by God? Can you give me a definition? And this is the only thing the theologian can tell you. Because remember, you cannot limit it. And the theologian will say, there is a power in these cosmos that we call God and God just is. Neither created nor destroyed, he is the cause and effect of himself, and he is 100% evenly present in all places at all times. Now it seems to me that I heard that just a few minutes ago. So the only thing that has changed is the name. The activity is the same. And it is clearly demonstrated in the book. You'll find in this book something Warner Von Brunn stated. Bob quoted Warner Von Brunn. Von Brunn pointed out that science are studying, you could say, the energy and the force around humanity. Theology are studying the force within humanity. And they're eventually going to find out that they are studying one and the same force. You see, when we understand what B. Rand said, it is intelligent, we are intelligent, but it is the working relationship with this power that brings about the kind of results we get because it can't do for you what it can only do through you. Gosh, I'd, I'd give just about anything for a person to get a hold of that or to understand that. That it cannot do for you what it can only do through you. Think about that. Now, would you go over to page 27? We've got to gotta move on here. And at the very top of the page, for centuries, there has been a select group of people who are the real thinkers. I mean, we could name many. Edison, Emerson, Thoreau. I, I mean, there are so many we could be here all day talking about. Them. But every one of them, although they had different ideas and different philosophies, this is the one thing they were in complete and unanimous agreement with. These individuals have always known there is a power which permeates, penetrates, and fills the inner spaces of the cosmos, and that everything you see around you is an expression of that power, and so is everything which you feel. The power operates in a very precise manner, which is generally called law. We choose to call it God. Others may speak of it as love, divine mind, divine intelligence, Jehovah, Lord, Father, first cause, as well as a whole host of other synonymous names. But it doesn't really matter what you call it. Because the important thing to bear in mind and anyone of understanding will really admit the fact is that there is a, it is the power that doeth the work. It's not you and I. It's something we work with. But it also works with us. In other words, everything comes from one source and that source, that source power always flows and works to and through you. And that is you. Stated differently, the image that you have formed can only come to you on the physical plane of your life. In other words, your results. In one way, and that is by, the, by law and through faith. Now, the, the second part of this particular chapter, uh, Bob is going to work with to show just how faith moves this power into action. 
Keep these two things in mind as we go through it. There are only two words you need to remember as Bob walks you through this. One is order and the other is movement. Order and movement. And when both of those are functioning together rather than working against one another, we have success. Happiness, health, and wealth, which is your birthright. So let's bring on, to take us through the rest of this particular chapter, uh, my good friend and your good friend, Bob Proctor. Sylvia Vanderhoek with our company, she's a vice president with our company, gave me a bumper sticker here a couple of weeks ago. And it said, it's too bad ignorance isn't painful. <laughs> and you know, that's so true. In covering this particular subject, you're hitting on probably one of the most important things that anyone can study and yet very few people study it in any depth with respect to application in the various areas of their life. John was quoting Warner Von Braun, um, the late Dr. Von Braun. He said one time, now keep in mind this was a scientist. He is considered by many as the father of the space program. And he said after years of studying the spectacular mysteries of the cosmos, he was led into a firm belief in the existence of God. And he pointed out that science and religion were not antagonistic. He said, on the contrary, there are sisters. Well, one studies the forces of nature outside of us. The other studies the force within us. John made reference to that. He was talking about the atheist. I heard a cute little story one time where the guy said he always felt sorry for the atheist. He said, when they die, they said they're all dressed up and they got nowhere to go. And uh, <laughs> now, I have seen um, in my own life, in a number of other people's lives, some spectacular things take place when a person grasps this idea. Yesterday, I pointed out that one of our great problems was that we thought we were physical beings. And of course, we're not. If we were just physical, then there would be a limit to what we could do. There's a limit to what that table can hold. You start piling uh, weight on that table, and you're going to get to a point where the table's just going to crush under the weight. It's like the story of the camel and the straw. You put too much straw on the camel's back, and you get to a point, you just put one straw on too many, and that's the straw that breaks the camel's back. We are spiritual beings living in physical bodies. Now, you and I have an intellect, and through the proper use of the intellect, we can do wonderful things in our life. Now, we used a drawing yesterday in, uh, in the previous lesson, and I'd like to suggest that you come back and focus your attention on this drawing again. Now, remember we were talking about the mind. We have no difficulty getting an image of a person's body. We see our own every day. We see it reflecting back from the mirror. Every time we look at someone else, we see their body. Well, the problem we have is that we have no image for the mind. 
Well, of course, in the previous lesson, we gave you one. And we said, let this represent the mind. And then we pointed out to let this represent the body. And we took and we divided this, and we said, this actually is the creative or the start of all creation in our life, this part of our personality. Because as this power flows into us, we can do whatever we choose with it. And of course, we can build a negative concept or we can build a positive concept. But we have the choice of what we're going to build. Now, ask yourself if you could have anything you want and it starts in the form of an image, what would you start imaging? Because that's really the name of the game. It's name it and claim it. Now, this works both on a negative as well as a positive basis. Because as you take this image, you can accept it, you can reject it as the images come into our mind. We can do anything we want with them. We do not have to get emotionally involved with them. Now, this part is the spiritual side of our personality. This side of us has no ability to reject an idea. It just accepts whatever comes into it and instantly and automatically moves the body into that vibration. In other words, the image begins to move into form. Now, as we go on in the, uh, in the upcoming lessons, we're going to talk about more how that happens through vibration and through attraction. I want to share something with you, uh, a couple of stories, and then one personal experience. I was in Jackson, Mississippi back in 1977. I had gone into uh, Jackson to do a seminar, and as I was waiting for my bags to come down the chute, this gentleman came over and he shook hands with me and introduced himself. He told me his name was M.C. Duncan and he was from Oklahoma City. He was the president of Oklahoma Life. And he said, you know, I've been listening to you all week and I've been watching you all week. And I said, well, that's interesting, where was I? And he just laughed and he had been listening to cassettes and watching the videos. And as fate would have it, we were there for different reasons, but we were both going to the same hotel. So we shared a cab, we went over to the hotel, we checked in at the registration desk, and then we just wandered over in the foyer and sat down and started chatting. Now you're going to find that everyone that starts to study themselves, they become great readers. They always want to get into good books because they want to find out more about the subject. It's so fascinating. Well, he and I got talking about the various books that we liked. And uh, we had read many of the same books. And I asked him, I said, have you ever read any of Robert Russell's books? And he said, no, he hadn't. Well, I had an entire set of them. I think there were eight of them. I had them in my briefcase. Now, I had been reading these books. And I'd give them away here and there. And I just picked up a new set prior to leaving town. And I put them in my briefcase. So I took them out and I gave them to him. And he looked at me a little strange, and he said, well, let me pay you for them. And I said, no, no. I said, don't pay me for them. I said, you just take them and enjoy them. And, you know, I just smiled, and I said, you, you know that you can never give anything away. It always comes back. In fact, pressed down and running over. I said, that's the rules. And he laughed, and he said, yes, I know. Well, when I got back to Chicago, to my office, I began to get inundated with great material from M.C. Duncan. And the first thing he sent me was this transcript of a minister's sermon that was preached on November the 21st, 1976. 
Now, I received this on the 3rd of March, 1977. So the sermon was only a couple of months old. It was delivered by uh, a Reverend Norman Neves at the Church of the Servant in Oklahoma City. And M.C. Duncan wrote here, Insist Upon Miracles Today. Here he wrote, Bob, first four paragraphs, great story about wrong thinking, etc., etc. Best regards, M.C. Duncan. Now, this is a classic. It really is. Keep in mind, this is how a minister is starting a sermon, uh, the sermon um, in Oklahoma City. He began by saying, I read a story in the paper the other day that not only caught my attention, but that continued to hold it and hold it the further I read. It was a story of a railway employee uh, somewhere in Kansas who accidentally locked himself into a refrigerator car and then who wasn't able to escape. Perhaps you read the story also and know what I mean when I say it continued to hold my attention. Now he said apparently this man had banged and banged on the side of the car to attract someone's attention, but apparently also no one heard him. So he finally gave up and resigned himself to his fate. Sometime during the night, as he felt his body becoming numb, he began, began to scribble some sentences on the wall of the car. Sentences recording some of his last sensations as he moved closer and closer to death. The first sentence said, I'm becoming colder. The second sentence, a little bit further down, said, still colder, nothing to do but wait. Then it said, I'm slowly freezing to death. Half asleep now, I can hardly write. And then down at the bottom, this sentence which said, these may be my last words, which in fact they were. When the car, the railroad car was open the following day, they found him dead. But let me tell you something that's really startling about this story. The freezing apparatus on the car had been malfunctioning. It had not been operating properly for several days. And believe it or not, the temperature hadn't gotten below 49 degrees during the entire night that he was there. In other words, this man had become the victim of his own illusion. He had presumed that his time had come and his life was over when, in fact, there was no need of that presumption at all. And so, even though the temperature had never fallen below 49 degrees, this man died nevertheless and isn't here to enjoy himself today. Neves went on to point out, he said, there's a lot of us that do that with our lives, aren't there? We misread the signs of our predicaments. We presume that things are worse than they really are. And so, like that man, we too become the victim of our own illusion. We die, if you will, even though the temperature of our circumstance never even gets close to freezing. Now, you see, this man used his reasoning factor and he used it incorrectly. He let what he thought were circumstances control his thinking. That's the image he put in and that's exactly what he got. You think maybe that that's what Moses was talking about when he talked about that reasoning factor, when he said, behold, today I lay before you both a blessing and a curse. Now, I'm going to give you an example of someone that used it the other way. 
Many years ago, I made a sales call in Chicago when I first started to do seminars in the United States on a gentleman named Mel Haycraft. Mel Haycraft was the vice president of sales to the Prudential Insurance Company in their mid-America region. Now, I did not know it at the time, but the Prudential Insurance Company was the number one company in the world, and the Mid-America region was the number one region in the Prudential Insurance Company out of 10 different regions. So needless to say, I was talking to a heavyweight when it comes to business. I was only in his office a few minutes, and Mel said, well, Bob, what is it? And I said, Mel, I've got a seminar that'll just get your sales flying. And I'll never forget the smile that'll come on his face. And he looked at me and he pushed his chair back from the desk and he opened a drawer and he took a file folder out and he spun these brochures across the desk. Did you see all those brochures? I said, yeah. He's all those people said the same thing. I said, is that right? I said, well, we're different. We was me at the time. But if you're alone in business, you never refer to me, you see. So at any rate, I said, we are different. See, I had a brochure made up that made it look like we operated on the entire 12th floor of the Hancock Center, I thought. But at any rate, he looked at me and smiled and he said, how are you different? I said, we get results. He said, they all said the same thing. Now, I knew that I wasn't making any headway. If you're in sales, you know when you get to a point like that, you either have to dance or hit the exit. And I wasn't about to leave. I had a hard time getting in to see this man. As a matter of fact, an associate of mine had phoned him every Monday for a year. We couldn't get in to see him. One Monday he was sick. Mel phoned him to ask what was wrong. And that's how we broke down his door. But at any rate, I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. You give me a hundred of your best people. Don't give me the worst, give me the best. I said, anyone can do something with the worst. Just give me the best. And I said, we will do a seminar, won't cost you a dime. We'll give you the material, give you the seminar. And I said, let them be the judge of whether this will help them in their sales. He said, you got a deal. So we did that seminar. I run into a chap in Detroit here just a little while ago, Carl Walker, that was in that group of people. I remember Carl sitting in the back row. I'll never forget Carl. And about halfway through the seminar, he kept getting up and down and up and down and up and down. The guy was going, getting so excited he couldn't stay in the seminary. He had to go out and sell somebody. But at any rate, <laughs> that's a true story. Carl's over in Detroit, and Carl, you'll be watching this. You'll remember as well as I do. We laugh about it every time I see him. But at any rate... We passed the test. I found myself in front of 450 of their district insurance agents at the Hillside Holiday Inn in Chicago. When I was talking to them for a very short period of time, I suggested that anyone in that room could go out and write $5 million worth of business. Now, when I mentioned that, you could just feel, wham, the minds go closed. I'd lost the entire group. Now, you see, what we were doing and what was different we were introducing this element right here to their sales, to the psyche of their salespeople, to their sales presentation, to their belief system. They had never had that mixed in with their training before. This chap come up to me at the first break. He says, Proctor, he said, did you ever sell insurance? And I said, no, I never have. He said, I didn't think so. I said, why are you saying that? He said, you don't know what you're talking about. Oh, I said, no, hold on a second. I didn't say I didn't know what I was talking about. I just said I've never sold insurance. I said, I don't know any more about insurance than the doorman or the salad chef in here. I said, I'm operating on the premise you already know how to write $5 million worth of business. 
And he looked at me and he said, well, wait just a minute. He said, you know this company is 100 years old? And I said, yeah, I'd heard that. He said, you know there's 20,000 agents in this company? And I said, yeah, I'd heard that. Well, he said, did you hear that we've never had one right $5 million worth of business? Well, I said, then you can be the first. <laughs> yeah. Now, this was around the end of August. He said, you said this year. I said, that's right. He said, the year's over half done. Well, I said, then it won't take as long to do it. <laughs> now, I said, Don, if you can see yourself as a $5 million producer, you heard what Paul Hutsey did with this idea, and you get emotionally involved with that idea, you turn it over, that part of you that's unseen, it's non-physical, but it's in every part of your being, I guarantee you, you'll act differently and what you attract to you will be quite different. And I said, you'll do it. Now that's a magazine that that company prints, or printed. That's a picture of the man I was talking to. His name's Don Sloven. And that's a write-up about our conversation. The second week in December, Don Sloven had paid for $5,200,000 worth of business. He closed the year with a little better than $6 million worth of business. And the strange part about this is, when he crossed that imaginary line, there was a whole string of people following him. See, every person, everywhere in history, that got the image of what they wanted. They burned that image into their mind. They refused to accept circumstances. Every one of them have accomplished what they've imaged. For years, people had tried to run a mile in four minutes. I mean, thousands of years. Do you know the early Egyptians used to turn a lion loose and let it chase a person hoping they'd run a mile in four minutes. But they couldn't do it. The experts said it couldn't be done. They said our cardiovascular system wasn't proper for it. They, they said our muscles weren't right. The bone structure wasn't right. But in the spring of 1954, a young guy named Roger Bannister quit believing in the experts, started to believe in Roger Bannister, and he ran a mile in under four minutes. Within a month, other people were running a four-minute mile. We had a young guy in this company down in Louisiana. As a matter of fact, he worked for Paul Hotze. That wrote five million in a week, and he previously hadn't written three in a year. Now, why am I mentioning these things? Well, I mention them because you can all tell a story like this about yourself. Now, just reading on commitment here, it's vitally important that you remain committed to your goal. Understand that if you've got a vision, there's no such thing as an unrealistic vision. Roger Bannister did not believe in the experts. Roger Bannister believed in Roger Bannister, and it's precisely why he broke that four-minute mile. You can do it. Don't listen to the people that tell you you can't. I want to introduce you to a lady that has a phenomenal vision, Susan Busey. Relate to her and the goals she set. Do you have a dream for your business? Oh, yes. What is it? Without being a cliche, to be a household name, but to be the best service in the world. Susan Busey said, 
the very biggest and the best in the world. Susan Busey started a maid service. They're cleaning homes. And she wasn't satisfied just to work in her own neighborhood and earn a few dollars. She wanted to develop this worldwide. I received a call from Susan just within the past week. Susan is opening in the Orient. She has a contractual arrangement with Japanese business firms, and she's going to be opening her business in the Orient. Susan Busey, like Roger Bannister, did not let people telling them they couldn't do it stop them. Don't let anything stop you. You stay committed to your goal. Keep that dream in your mind and understand the power within you will execute it if you just hold it there and give it everything you've got. It was his uh, stick person concept. Letting go of the past, which I was quite prepared to do, and I'd never heard anybody say to me, let go of the past in such a way that I did. Take a look at the future with optimism and fight. If you want something bad enough, go for it and get it. And I did. How many people here have played a yo-yo? Come on. How many have played a yo-yo? Let me see. Have you ever played a yo-yo? Sure you have. Well, I was wandering down the street in Columbia, South Carolina. Must be 15 years ago. I was working out of Los Angeles. And at noon this day, I didn't feel like eating. I was going a little stir-crazy in the hotel. So I decided to just go for a walk. I was with another chap named Michael Sobel, who's a lawyer of ours out of L.A. And we're wandering down the street. It's a beautiful day. And I saw this little kid playing a yo-yo. Now, do you know it's marvelous the way our mind works? We can relive years in our life in seconds, just like that, a millisecond. Well, when I saw this little guy, I had a great movie just whoom right across the screen of my mind. And I saw myself as a little kid coming running out of Balmy Beach Public School in the east end of Toronto. And I would run up, Kingston, up Beach Avenue and down Kingston Road, and I was looking for a specific guy. His name was Ricky McGinnis. And Ricky McGinnis was employed by the Cheerio Yo-Yo Company here in Canada. He was a yo-yo pro. He was a champion. And I'm going to tell you, this guy could play a yo-yo. Now, they dressed these guys up. You see, they gave him a uniform. The uniform consisted of a maroon sleeveless sweater that had red, white, and blue hair and a V-neck. That was for V for victory. That came from the Second World War. Some of you weren't around then. In fact, most of you weren't around then. But anyway, and that, that's what that represented. But he had a great big crest here in the center. And it had Cheerio across it, and it had Yo-Yo Champion. Then it had little badges sewn all over it, and each one of these little badges represented a trick. And if you learned the trick, you'd get these little badges. Well, of course, he had them all. And I always remember I envied this guy because he had a great big raft of Yo-Yo strings around his neck. Now, Yo-Yo strings, when I was a young guy, were two for a nickel. And, of course, if you had two nickels at the same time in our neighborhood, you were considered financially independent. I mean, now, <laughs> it was a poor neighborhood. None of us slept alone in that area until after we got married. I mean, <clears throat> you just fat ones on the bottom, you know? I mean, that was a rough area. Well, at any rate, every now and then we'd break a string, and we didn't have a nickel to buy a new string, and he would take one of these strings out, and he'd hand it to us. He might even pat us on the head and 
call us by name. Of course, we had arrived if the pro recognized us. Because, you see, he was like the Pied Piper. When we found him walking up the street, we'd walk with him and we'd just stare at him, you know, and just look at him. I mean, we had this guy. You talk about God. We thought this guy was God. I mean, we had him deified. Well, at any rate, here we'd get to Kingston Road and Scarborough Road, and he'd start teaching us a trick, and he'd test us on a trick, and we'd form a great big circle around him. Now, that's what I saw in a matter of a millisecond when I saw this kid play the yo-yo. And I suddenly had the strongest urge inside of me to play a yo-yo. I didn't have a yo-yo. So I called this little kid over. I said, come here. He was all by himself, just a little kid. You know, so he came over and he, I said, give me your yo-yo. So he took his yo-yo off and he gave it to me. Now, he was still at a pump your body stage. You see, he didn't know how to play the yo-yo. He was like Carol. He was just learning. But at any rate, he'd be walking along and he'd pump his body. And I guess if he kept doing that, he figured it would go up and down. So at any rate, the little kid gave me the yo-yo and I thought, I wonder if I could still play one of these things. I hadn't had one in my hand for years. It's not bad. You can give me a hand for that if you want. <laughs> Well, then I started to remember some of the tricks. That's called making it sleep. If you can't do that, you uh, are out of luck. You can't play the yo-yo. You can't do the tricks. So did that. Then I remembered this one. This was rock the cradle. You learn how to do that, and you get a badge, you see? Isn't that wonderful? What trick is that, Bob? What trick is that? That's a dandy. You know, Gina asked me just a few minutes ago, John, there's a yo-yo in that bag. Do you want to throw it out? They, Gene asked me a few minutes ago, how's the string in your yo-yo? And I said, oh, it's fine. Now, that's the second time in a week. That's the second time in a week that that's happened. I got to get this one working right. It wasn't working right earlier. Well, yeah, John used to carry the yo-yos and clean the boards, you see. Oh, we got it gone. We're right back in business. Remember that song, John? It's just like old times. <laughs> he was only a baby. He was a bad baby, too. Now, you don't believe me, I asked his mother. She's sitting up there. Well, at any rate, I was in the Boy Scouts. You see, I came prepared. I have two yo-yos. I think I have two. Yeah. That was Rock the Cradle. You learn how to do that, and you get a badge. Now, we had another one. Well, this is a dilly. And this one, called Shoot the Gun. Now, seeing as how a pro's at his best regardless, I'm going to make this sucker work. But anyway. Um, that, that, one day he came around and he said, listen, we're going to have a big contest. And he said, the winner is going to get one of these sweaters. Well, I'm going to tell you, you talk about building an image in your mind. All of a sudden, I could see on the screen of my mind that sweater on me. And you talk about getting emotionally involved. What we say feeling was, we said feeling is conscious awareness of vibration. What we say caused vibration, we said getting emotionally involved in the idea 
put the body into the vibration that it had to be in, and when you become consciously aware of that, you called it a feeling. Well, I could actually feel this sweater on me. I mean, I could hear all the pretty little girls saying, that's the guy that won the sweater. And of course, I'd let on I didn't hear him, and I'd say, that's right, you know, it was me. And anyway, I could actually feel this. I mean, I had to have that sweater. You know, every once in a while, something comes up, and you just have to do it. I had to win that sweater. Now, I was just a little kid. I was learning a phenomenal life's lesson, but I didn't know I was learning it. Now, Rick would come around, and he'd just show us this trick once. He'd fire this thing down, and he'd bring it up. I may have to get another string for this thing. Get up here. Yeah, that's it. Right. Now, how many of you can do that with the yo-yo? Now ask yourself why you're not able to do that, and I am. Do you want to know why? I'm going to tell you why. See, any person in this room could learn how to do that. If you wanted the sweater bad enough, and I wanted that sweater, and I hooked the sweater up, what I wanted, with what I was doing, and I had to believe I could get it. What did Napoleon Hill say? He says, there's a difference between wishing for something and believing you can receive it. And he said, the key is you've got to believe it. William James says, believe, and your belief will create the fact. Well, you know, that's where it all starts. That's where it all starts. I don't care how simple it is. I don't care if it's just winning a sweater with a yo-yo. It could be writing the five million, or it could be doing what that man did in the boxcar. Yet works both ways. Yet has no ability to change the idea. Whatever you ask for, that's exactly what you get. Now, as you take the idea that you build, and you've got the ability to sit down and design any idea you want, you see, if you were going to decorate your room, you'd get an idea here in your mind of how you'd like that room decorated. And then you'd go and get the things that you needed, and you'd put them in place until you had built on the physical plane of life a replica of the picture you've got in here. We have a gentleman here with us today that wrote the music and the lyrics for The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. Give Scott Turk a hand. Sitting right over here on the side. Stand up for me, Scott. Scott is the musical, musical director over at Leopoldslin Theater. When you heard um, Dave ask, is there anybody from out of town? And you heard someone say from Colorado. Scott is from Colorado, but he is entertaining over at Leopoldslin Theater. If you want to see a good play, you want to go over. I've been to uh, Scott's play in the past, and I'm going to tell you this man is quite a musician. Scott, where does the music start? Would you say it starts right in here? You start hearing it in your head, don't you? Yeah. That's right. You actually hear the music in your head. You see, Scott takes this power and he turns it into music in his head. He literally hears it. And as he hears it, he sees it written on paper. Am I right or wrong? Then you take a pen or a paper and you write it. Scott, stand up for just a second, because this is a good example. 
Then when he's got the music, he not only writes the music, he put words with the music. Is that correct? And we call those lyrics. And he takes and he writes the lyrics and he knows those words. What are words? Words are nothing but ideas dressed up for our physical benefit. And you put words and that puts more meaning then to the sound that you've heard. Is that correct? Thank you, Scott. Now, you see, some people will say, well, he's creative, but I'm not. That's not true. Everyone's creative. We're all an expression of the same power. We've all been given the same tools. Scott has developed those, and many of us haven't. This is where it starts. Now, you're working with the universal power. This power just isn't in you. It's in everyone. It's in everything. We use this drawing to graphically convey an idea of you, your body, your mind, your intellect. But if you were to look at this properly, this is how it would appear. It's a universal power that you're impressing that idea on. Do you know when you throw a pebble into the lake, the entire shoreline has been changed. If you throw a pebble into the Atlantic Ocean, the entire shoreline has been altered. You'll say, oh, not the Atlantic. Yeah, even the Atlantic Ocean. Do you know where our problem is? We cannot see with these physical things the change in the shoreline. But understanding lets us see the change in the shoreline. Van Gogh was asked how he did such beautiful work. He did it the same way Scott does it. I dream my painting, and then I paint my dream. Do you know you'll never buy an original painting? Why? The original's on the mind of the artist. Well, we're all working with the same power. Don Sloven sensed that I believed he could write the five million. I knew he could write the five million. That gave Don a little inspiration, and he started to think about it. He started to think of all the good things that would come to him, fame, fortune, everything. And he got emotionally involved, and as he put that idea in there, Don Sloven moved into a brand new vibration. He started to attract all kinds of different things to him. Do you think it's an accident when one person, one in sales, goes into their office, and in their pigeonhole, there are no messages, and another one goes in, and there's 14 people wanting to buy something from them? Do you think it's an accident when there are two businesses side by side, one win, one loses? I go to a barber shop down on Bayview Avenue, Tony's. I've been going there for 25 years whenever I've lived in Toronto. Four doors away is another barber shop on Bayview Avenue. I have never seen anyone in that barber shop in 25 years. I've never seen one person. Now, I know someone goes in there. I know that because the person couldn't keep the doors open. Otherwise, Tony's, you always have to wait. And the other one, you would never have to wait. And someone would say, well, that'd probably be a good place to go. I don't think he'd cut it the way I want it cut. And I think there's a lot of people think, I don't think he'll cut it the way I want it cut. But why is it empty? Is it because I'm thinking that? No. It's empty because that's the way that man sees his barbershop. 
We had some people come into Chicago one time when I was working with the Nightingale organization. They had a chicken restaurant in Ohio. It was out in the country. It was a great, big, beautiful white mansion. They sold more chicken dinners than any restaurant in the United States. People had come from three states away to buy from them. It's in the image. Now ask yourself what kind of an image have you been holding? Have you been wishing good things would happen but think bad things would happen? You see, most people, most people will let their present physical results control their way of thinking. They're emotionally involved in it. They think it's an accident that the same results keep reoccurring. That's no accident. If you've got a financial problem, if you've got a cash flow problem, if you've got a marital problem, that's what most people concentrate on. If a doctor takes a photograph of your body and then tells you you're sick and shows you you're sick, what's the person concentrate on? Sickness. What's the photograph prove? The photograph proves that the person has been concentrating on something wrong to move their body into that vibration. What should they do? They should ask for help. Where does it come from? There's only one source, and they see perfect health. Or they see prosperity. But the cynics don't believe this. And it's a strange thing. The cynics don't get results either. Quit letting your present results control your thinking. This power that I call God is in every one of us. And it's no more present in one person than it is in the other. Scott Turk hasn't got any more of this power than Bob's got. Bob hasn't got any more of it than, than Reen's got. Reen hasn't got any more of it than Dave's got. Every one of us are an expression of the same power. And when we really grasp this, this universal concept, we're going to realize that we are all essentially the same with the same powers. It's learning how to use this. I remembered how that went then. It says, because the time will most assuredly come, and the best and wisest know not how soon, when death, the leveler of all human greatness, will reduce us all to the same level. It's like burning the paper, isn't it? It's like boiling the water. See, death, as we know it, is moving under this thing. Life, as we know it, is in this thing. But if nothing's created or destroyed, and if all science and all theology tell us the same thing, then that only postulates one theory, the theory of life. See, everything you have is going to belong to someone else at the time of your death, but what you are is yours forever. Now, we want to try and understand this concept. On page 28, we say you are a perfect instrument for spirit to express itself through. <laughs> Start to see yourself. Now, every time you think of yourself, think of that drawing. Every time you think of the drawing, you think of yourself. You've got to have an image to work with. On page 28, we say, see yourself as a perfectly endowed spiritual instrument without limitation. When you do, you're going to find it easy, in fact, natural to expect the good you desire. You will also understand that doubt simply obstructs the unfoldment of the prosperity in your life. Now, read this bottom paragraph on page 28. Doubt does not shut down the workings of the power. The power's always working. Think of the man in the refrigerator car. It's always working. It never stops. There isn't some emotional or capricious God saying, oh, wait a minute, you're choosing the wrong thought. 
You ask and you'll receive. You ask for the wrong thing, you're going to get it. It'll be delivered right on schedule. You can make buck on it. The doubt you hold becomes the picture, which will turn into your physical results. You see, when you build the picture, you control from inside. You do not control from outside, regardless of the circumstance of the present results. What did James Allen say? Your circumstances may be uncongenial, but they will not long remain so if you perceive the ideal and strive to reach it. Do you know what an ideal is? An ideal is an idea that you fall in love with. And you know what love is? Love is resonance. It's harmony. It's in tune. It's operating on the same frequency. Well, when you get the higher side of your personality operating with the lower side of your personality, you're going to see miraculous changes take place on the physical side of your personality. But until you get these two in tune, you're going to have a problem. Because when they're not in tune, there's what we call conflict. And if there's conflict in the mind, I guarantee it'll express itself in the body. What do you think dis-ease is? It's the opposite of at-ease. On page 29, one of the best definitions of faith I've ever heard came from a chap in Chicago, Clarence Smithison. Clarence Smithison. He said, faith is the ability to see the invisible. What did we say about Scott's music? No one on planet Earth had ever heard that music that he heard in his head until he put it on paper and then sent it out so that the rest of the world could enjoy what he was enjoying. It's the ability to see the invisible, to believe in the incredible. What is incredible is that there's a power in every cell of your being that operates in a totally deductive manner. It will take whatever image you impress it upon it, and it'll move you into the vibration you have to be in, to act the way you have to act, to attract the thing you have to attract for the manifestation of the image that you chose to be. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Built. You can say using a slightly different vocabulary, I'd make the observation, if you can show me a person who achieves great things, I can show you a person who has great faith in themselves and their ability to achieve what they imagine. On page 29, I was having dinner last night with Paul Hutsey. He told me a most interesting little story. Paul was talking about, it's what's on the inside, it's not what's on the outside. He talked about it yesterday while he was talking about it last night. And he tells the story about the little black boy that went to the, to the carnival. And there was a man there blowing up balloons, filling them with helium gas, then letting them go. And he filled a red balloon, and then he tied it up and he let it go. And the little boy was standing there watching him. And then he filled a yellow balloon with helium, and he tied it and he let it go. Then he filled a green balloon and he tied it and he let it go. And the little boy said, Mister, he said, can black balloons fly? He said, son, any balloon can fly. It's not what's on the outside that makes it fly. It's what's on the inside. And that's the way it works. Interesting idea. We say comparatively few people today realize just how much faith in oneself, your higher self, not this false concept that we've been running around with, can't do this, can't do that. 
your higher self, that side of you that's universal, that's the same side of us all, that part of you that's spiritually perfect, has to do with your achievement. The majority of people never seem to conceive of faith as being a genuine creative force. Yet the truth is that not only is faith a bona fide power, yet is the greatest one you will ever encounter. Ever encounter. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that whatever you accomplish in your lifetime will be in direct proportion to the intensity and persistence of your faith. Intensity, what do we mean by that? Well, remember we said one of the intellectual factors was the will. The will gives us the ability to concentrate on an idea. And when we concentrate on the idea, we're just taking that power and turning it right over. We're giving more energy to the idea. What did Emerson say? The only thing that can grow is the thing you give energy to. It's been told to us 10,000 ways. I think what we want to do is wake up. May I borrow your program, please? No, the, the tapes. You have a set of these tapes. You need a new tape. Some of you will be wondering how to get these out. You're digging with your fingernails. And the ladies are getting upset because they're breaking their fingernails. You just have to press on the side. And they pop out. And then it tells you underneath how to get them out. <laughs> Andy Rooney would probably get about an hour and a half out of that. Now, you've got a relaxation and visualization tape. I want to suggest that you put this to good use. On page 30, on page 30, we're suggesting that you take this new understanding that you're developing, you take the description of the new you that you wrote up on page 26, that new description should include no negatives. It should be in the present tense. It should not say, I am going to become. It should say, I am. I am so happy that I am. And describe everything that you want to be. It's got to be. This is vitally important in present tense. This part of your personality knows nothing about past or future. There's only now. You ask yourself, where am I? What time is it? You'll always get the same answer to those two questions. I'm here, it's now. So this is written in present tense. It includes no negatives. Everything is positive. You write it out. When you write it out, you have built brain cells. I'm going to ask the gentleman sitting there that I had up here yesterday, Nino. Nino, do you want to stand up for just a second? Nino, you looked at an object yesterday. And when you looked at that object, you had no cells of recognition for it in your brain. Now, Nino, I am just going to mention the, the, the object. It was a metal toothpick. Yesterday, you didn't even know what it is. Today, when I say, you can see it in here. Is that correct? Definitely. Thanks, Nino. Now, do you know what Nino is saying? 
I built brain cells yesterday. Well, do you know as you write out this description of you, you're literally building brain cells. You're building new brain cells. Those new brain cells hold an image of the new you. Now, this is how the change is made. You use this and you let yourself totally relax. Don't try and relax. Let yourself relax. Trying is forcing and you must let on the mind. You let yourself get emotionally involved in this image. And you know that every time you do, in a very relaxed state, wham, you just trigger those brain cells. You just think of the new you and that picture comes up. And you know every time you do that, you're giving more and more energy to those brain cells. They become stronger and stronger. And in a relatively short period of time, those ideas will be fixed in your mind and that's the way you'll live. When Cary Grant passed away, I read a page, an obituary on Cary Grant. There was an entire page of one-liners. The last one was by Cary Grant himself. He said, I acted like Cary Grant for so long I became him. I acted like Cary Grant for so long I became him. You can say, I've acted like this person on page 26 for so long I became that person. Now, you can go over this lesson and go over it. You can't go over it too often. Couldn't possibly. We're going to touch now on what you should expect because you're going to find that expectation is what really makes the difference. Now, as John goes through this page, I want you to think, I want you to think, if I built that picture on page 26, I painted the picture. It's like Scott heard the music, then he painted it on paper. Well, you saw the person and then you painted it on page 26. And every time you get emotionally involved, you rewrite it. And you're going to find you'll crystallize it and you'll make it better and you'll make it better and you'll make it better. Well, every time you do that, you're moving yourself into that vibration. You're going to get to the point where you'll start to expect the good that you desire. And John's going to tell you what will happen when you do. And you know, when I wrote that goal on the card years and years ago of having the $25,000, I didn't believe it. You may not believe what you write on that page. You might think this is really silly. You may think it's silly. Try it. I can guarantee in a relatively short period of time, you won't think it's silly anymore. Because as I pointed out, you write a lie on a card and you read it often enough, you're going to believe it. And you're going to find your belief, as William James said, will literally create the fact. The more often you listen to that section of your Born Rich program, the clearer it's going to be in your mind. I previously mentioned there were two pages in this book that would make a world of difference for you. One was page 26 and the other was page 30. Now on page 26, as you wrote down the person you wanted to be, you might have looked at that as being a fantasy. Do you know some people truly live their fantasies? What was actually happening when you sat and you thought of the person you wanted to become, you built this picture in your mind. You were literally building brain cells, just as I did with Nino 
on the first cassette that you are watching. Now, as you made the written description of the person you wanted to become, you built brain cells in your mind. Now we're going to activate those brain cells. Now consider this for a moment. Here you have fantasy, theory, and fact. Permit me to explain what's going to happen. If you will take the number seven audio cassette from your Born Rich program and play this tape, what you're going to do is put yourself into a very relaxed state. It'll be an altered state of consciousness. Go and lay down someplace quiet by yourself and turn this cassette on. And when you get into a very relaxed state, throw the switch of that person you want to be. You're going to activate those brain cells. Now in the beginning, it's going to remain a fantasy. But by playing this tape daily, twice a day if you can, and turning that picture on that you built on page 26, activating those brain cells, that fantasy is going to be turned into a theory in your mind. Now, every time you build that picture in a relaxed state, take page 30 and rewrite the picture. And what you want to do is crystallize the picture of the person you want to be. Cary Grant one time pointed out, I acted like Cary Grant for so long, I became him. That's what's going to happen to you. The power within ultimately will take this image of yours and begin to express it with and through you in your life. But it's vitally important that you use this cassette, put yourself in an altered state of consciousness, a very relaxed state, throw the switch that you created when you wrote out page 26, begin to visualize your fantasy, only it becomes real. When you come back to a normal conscious state, it's very important that you rewrite this picture again. Each time you rewrite it, it'll become clearer and clearer. Now, you may alter it a bit as you rewrite it. And as you rewrite it, you give more energy to those brain cells. Every time you relax, you're moving that picture more and more into a state that we call a theory. And you're going to find that you will be motivated. The power within you will actually take that image and begin to express it with and through you, and your theory will literally become a fact. Mine has, Roger Bannister's did, and so will yours. But it's important that you do what we suggest with page 30. Now, when that's complete, the next part that John Canary is going to lead you into is going to be truly rewarding for you. John's going to suggest that you begin to expect an abundance in your life, in all areas of your life. Keep this idea in your mind as we run through this abundance lesson here. John is going to lead you through that now. Let's give John a hand as he can John. About six years ago, I was down in a place called South Jersey around Cherry Hill, uh, Trenton, Atlantic City. And there was two speakers on a program just before me. 
And I, I've never been able to understand why I'm always the last one on a program, no matter where we're speaking. As a matter of fact, same thing happens to Robert. But something interesting happened on this program. There were two people on it who were stone blind. The first speaker was Tom Sullivan that you see in the odd TV show, Good Morning America, programs of that nature. And both of them gave the same title to their talk that day. And the title went like this. If only you people could see what we hear. Now that day I learned something about that we don't see with our eyes, but we do see with our mind. In other words, and I'm going to work with both boards here in a little while, but I learned that day that the individual who has a desire can achieve that desire when they understand the relationship of being able to see it with their mind. Now when Charlie Bosley got up that day, I could not believe what I heard when he was introduced as one of the top 10% of all life insurance agents on this earth, but yet the man was stone blind. Now, Charlie Bosley said he has always had a desire to achieve something. But he said he never, ever left the house uh, because he was feeling sorry for himself as a result of something that happened to him in Vietnam. Then he said one day he was down in Atlanta watching a great golf tournament with the great Ben Hogan. And Ben Hogan would get up and tee off and they tell Charlie, Ben's getting up to tee off and he'd yell, come on Ben, come on Ben, you can do it, you can do it. And they'd come over and say, Mr. Bosley, you can't talk like that. At a golf tournament you have to pretend you're at a funeral. <laughs> but he said, I went through it for 18 holes because Ben Hogan is my hero. And he said, no one's going to throw a blind man off the golf course. <laughs> now he said, when it was all over, Ben Hogan came up to him and he said, Mr. Bosley, I want to thank you for being such an inspiration to me today. And Bosley said, no, it's I who should be thanking you, Mr. Hogan. He said, you see, when I heard your story, I was a man living in pity. He said, I heard about your car accident and how before the head-on collision you fell in front of your wife to protect her. And then when they got you to the hospital, they said to your wife, Mrs. Hogan, Ben will not live the night. And your wife said, you obviously don't know my husband. Now he said, the next morning when you proved the experts wrong and you were able to continue with your life, they said, but Mrs. Hogan, Ben is never going to walk again. And she said, you obviously don't know my husband. Now, as months went by, you see, uh, Ben, you know, he started to get his spirit back again. He started becoming consciously aware, I'm in a bed, my body is broken, but I want to play golf again. And they said, Mrs. Hogan... He wants his golf clubs now strung up on the ceiling where he can see them all day long, but he's never going to play golf again. And Mrs. Hogan said, Now he said, Mr. Hogan, you have won more golf tournaments and championships since 
your accident than before. And he said, that's the reason that I started to experience a different relationship with all the things that I have ever desired. And Hogan said, is there anything I can do for you, Mr. Bosley? He said, as a matter of fact, there is. He said, you know, I'm pretty good golfer. Do you know that he can beat many people on a golf, on a golf course any day of the week? even though he's blind. He said, what can I do for you, Mr. Bosley? He said, I want to play one round of golf with the great Ben Hogan. Anytime you want. He said, there's one condition, Mr. Hogan. I want to play for $1,000 a hole. <laughs> now, I want you to keep in mind here, before I finish this story, Bob mentioned how some people put what is called a crown on circumstance. In other words, there are some people that actually get down and they deify this word circumstance. That's what's in control of their life. But yet here was a man whose sensory factor called sight, it was absent, he was blind. And Ben said, there is no way that I'm going to play you for $1,000 a hole, what will people think of me? He said, now just a minute, Mr. Hogan, you asked me for a request, I gave it to you, now you're backing out. Well, he got the best of Ben, and Ben said, I'll tell you what, I've got some people here, they'll, they'll, uh, uh, they're witness to the fact that I warned you, I'll play you, but I am going to play my best. Charlie said, that's fine. I wouldn't expect you to do anything else, Ben. Ben said, okay, when do you want to play? And Charlie said, 10 o'clock tonight. <laughs> now I want you to think about what happened. You see, I want you for just a moment to think about all the things that you actually desire. Think about all the things that you desire. But now let me ask you something. On a scale of 1 to 10, I'll bet 10 being high that your desire for certain things in life, I would bet that they are at a 10. See, I've heard people say people lack desire. Nobody lacks desire. You see, if you take and define this word desire for just a moment, just define this word desire. It is the effort of an unexpressed possibility within us that is seeking expression through us. The word desire, it comes from the Latin word dea, D-A dash S-I-R-E, which means to give birth to. Everybody in here has something rattling around within them that they want to give birth to. Desire is the language of spirit. But it seems the basic difference in people who experience their desire versus people who do not experience their desire, it has something to do with this great principle, the greatest principle an individual can ever learn, which is called expectation. 
Expectation. Now, if you had to take and write down something that surrounds this central purpose, just for a moment, if I said to everyone in this room, now Bob asked you to write out on a page what you want to become. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that everybody in this room from the top to the back and in the middle, that every one of us have a desire to be more, to do more, and to have more. But how many people actually expect it to happen? You know, there's a great uh, point in history where Moses was leading all these people around a desert. And you know, a lot of people said he was lost. Moses was not lost. He was a man of wisdom. And what he was doing is leading these people around and around in circles until he was able to change the attitude or the consciousness before he went in to this new land. And all the people, they came to him and they said, Moses, we've got a problem. We have no water. What are you going to do? He said, you go and pray to your God for rain. And away they went and back they came. And they come back and they said, Moses, God has forsaken us. He said, what do you mean? He said, we have no rain. Moses said, tell me, where are the ditches? They said, the what? He said, the ditches. If you believed it was going to rain, you would have dug the ditches. You see, you can go around and desire all the things you want to be, all the things you want to do, and all the things you want to have, but until you're able to see yourself on the screen of your mind, you will never, ever experience the desire. Until you're able to see it, and then proceed by acting on it, you will never experience the desire. Now, I want to move over to the other board and cover a little idea that is very dear to my heart just before I touch in the book. Now, think about this. Everybody in here at one time started out even in search of a better condition. Improved quality, you could say, in our life. But for some reason or other, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20% of the people actually experience the objective, the goal, the purpose that they started out with. What happens to 80% of the people who start off with this great desire, this great love to achieve something, to become more, to have more and to do more, to express more and more of themselves. In that marvelous book I just talked about a moment ago, Genevieve B. Rand said this. She said that the purpose of spirit, the very purpose of spirit is expression. That it is seeking to become more and more over and above what it has already become. What a great thing to understand. It is seeking to become, but it cannot unless we permit it and provide this channel of expression. Unless we give it the channel, there is no expression. So how many people expect what it is they desire? Bob's going to get into this a little more later, but Raymond Hollowell said in his book, we should never desire something we don't expect, and we should never expect something we don't desire. 
This is the year, now the season, right now, where you see that commercial come on television. And you see a guy standing under a lamppost there, and he's sniffing, and it's raining, and it's cold, and it's dark, and he's getting a cold. And home he goes, and the scene switches, and there he is resting easily in bed because his wife just gave him NyQuil. Now, if you were to go down to any drugstore today and check the shelves for the cold remedies, they will be, there won't be too many. But as soon as the commercial hits the market, go down and they'll have an entire aisle dedicated just to the colds to comp or you could say that is consistent with the commercial. Because the season now has set up this mental ruling state which is called expectation. This is the season we expect to catch a cold. I've had people in the programs, I go up to them and I say something like this. Do you get a couple of colds a year? Yeah. How many have you had this year? One. Have you got one more to come? Yeah, I usually get it about November. <laughs> now that is the mental ruling state. Your expectation is a magnet and it will attract everything of a like nature. Let me give you an example. Brian, would you stand up with Leslie for a moment? Just go ahead and stand up, Mo, Brian. But when you met Leslie, did you just say, that's the girl I would like to spend some time with? It sure, I, that's... Brian, just tell me. <laughs> no, no question about it. <laughs> Leslie, when you looked at Brian, did you say, now there's a guy I want to spend my time with? Yeah. Now, I, I want you to understand something here. The two of them met long before they laid eyes on one another. Now, I know that's going to pop the navel of most people in here. <laughs> but what you're looking at is the law of expectation. Now, whether Brian was aware of it or not, he was attracting Leslie into his life. Leslie was attracting Brian into his life. Bob said resonance or love is the resonance of thought. What you're looking at is love. And what you're looking at is one idea vibrating in two bodies. Vibrating in two bodies. Brian made me promise I'd get him on the program. Okay, Brian, you can see that. Okay. Now think about it. Where did you get off in search of or in pursuit of what is called your goal? I want you to imagine going down to Maple Leaf Gardens and suddenly the game starts, you drop the puck, you look at each end of the rink and there's no nets. Now the game would be a little confusing. You need nets to play that game. I shouldn't say that with the Leafs, it doesn't matter. But now, <laughs> now think about it. I mean, if there were no nets at each end of the rink, the game, there would be a lot of activity, but there would be no purpose in playing the game. How can you play the game of life? How can you get up in the morning, put both feet in the floor, and you've got nothing to work toward? See, you have a desire, but what you do is you don't see yourself in possession of the desire. Consequently, you don't release this power that flows with and through you. But isn't it interesting that we all started out in pursuit of the objective, but something happens at a particular point. We run into a crisis. We run into conflict. And it seems that we run into what is called demands. What are some of the demands we all run into when we start to try and improve the quality of our life? Be a little better as a salesperson. Be a little better as a person, as a mother, as a father. Someone once asked me, give me one good reason, Canary, why I should have a goal and maybe try to be a little bit better than I am. I'm going to give you one. There are little eyes upon you when they're watching night and day. 
that are little ears that quickly they take in everything you say. They're little hands all eager to do everything you do, and a little boy or girl who's dreaming of the day they'll be just like you. For you're this little person's idol, you're the wisest of the wise, and their little mind about you no suspicions ever arise. For they believe in you devoutly, and me, in all we say and all we do. Those little people who are dreaming of the day they'll be just like you and just like me. What are we like? For we are setting an example every day in all that we do to those little gaffers who are dreaming of the day they'll be just like you. Just like you. And just like me. Well, you see, when you're faced with a demand, don't have enough money, debt, people phoning us. And I'd suggest that anyone who is in debt, I strongly urge you to read that chapter on Born Rich. It'll show you how to handle it. It'll show you how to handle it. Now think about this. Why is it when some people are faced with demands that turn into what are called risks, that some take what is called an option? Do you know the mind is such a marvelous, marvelous piece of equipment? Although the mind is an activity, it is not a thing. It is not a thing. I want you to think about this for just a moment. When the mind is presented with a demand or a risk, the mind will offer you and me an option. Do you know the option it offers us when we're faced with a strong demand and a risk is called the escape hatch. We then start expecting the result that we don't want. We are a force of energy and we attract everything of a like nature. Bob mentioned that this mental state of vibration, which generates this emotional state of vibration, which moves this body into action, those three states of vibration are nothing more but your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions. Think of this word, attitude. Attitude is nothing more but our thoughts, our feelings, and our actions. That's your state of vibration. That's the energy that you send out into life. And the only thing that flows in your life is based on what flows out of your life. Your thoughts, feelings, and actions release this energy and will attract everything that corresponds to that ruling state. Expectation can be either a blessing or a curse, but either way, it is certainly one of the most powerful unseen forces in your life. What do you expect? I'll tell you how to know what you expect. Take a look at the results in your life. Your results will tell you exactly what you've been expecting. What you've been expecting. Now, worry is the opposite of expectation using the same energy, but worry sets up a magnetic force that attracts things of a like nature or events and people to cause that worried state to actually manifest in one's life. Just quickly, this is a letter from a young boy named David Hulley in Hamilton, Ontario. And the letter he writes is about coming to a program that we were doing out in Hamilton. And he gives me all kinds of pleasantries here, dear John, this, that, and the other thing, and all the great things that happened to him. He said, when I was at your seminar, I wanted to stand up and say, I was a goal setter. I am a goal setter. But he said, I couldn't do that. He said, I allowed the demands and the risks to control 
what I was going to do. I allowed the demands and risks to keep me in my seat. But he said, then he said, you spent some time with me. We sat down, we talked about it. And he said, you gave me a little better understanding of what I want versus what I expect. There's the result. I want you to take a real close look at this report card because what's on it, if you go all the way down the page, you will see straight A's. Straight A's. Can you see it, John? He became a goal setter first. Second, he expected the goal to appear in his life. Now, I want to introduce you to Mark Dwyer. Mark, I was standing out in the hallway, and Mark came all the way down the back stairs, and Mark came up and he said, I said, uh, can I help you with something? He said, I just wanted to come down and meet you. You see. So I want to bring up, I had a little talk with him, and I want you to give a warm welcome to Mark Dwyer. Come on up here, Mark. Now you see, Mark has the same goal that David Hulley has. Isn't it interesting he happened to appear and talk about something I was going to share with you? Now Mark, which Mark is your lowest Mark? In what subject? A D. A D? In which subject, Mark? I think it's in science. Mark, do you like science as much as you like English? No. You see, Mark is never going to do as well in science as he's doing in English. Do you know why? He's not really excited about it. How could he possibly expect to do well in it? Now, Mark, I want you to just stand sideways with me here. And I want you to take a look at the board, like just kind of face me. Just turn around and face me. Go ahead like I'm standing. Okay, do that. Now, Mark. <laughs> Mark, have you been talking to Bob before you come up here? <laughs> I'm going to get Brian down here to do a little number. Okay, Mark. Mark, you see, here's a person that's not getting any marks in school. They have a desire. And they start out, Mark, with all the, all the marks that they want in school. They want to be good kids. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. They want to do well in school. But, you know, there's demands and there risks. You know what the demands and risks are, Mark? The demands and the risks are coming from their peers. Do you know, Mark, there are people in school that are going to stop you from doing well if you let them? Yes. Isn't that right, Mark? Yes. Mark, are you going to let them? No. Mark, you see, you have a desire, right? Now, Mark, you can see yourself not accomplishing that desire because there's a lot of demands and a lot of things that tell you you can't do it. There's a lot of people that are going to say you can't be a member of our club if you want to get good marks. And then what you do is you take the escape hatch. Mark, I want you to remember one thing for me, will you? That no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. Will you remember that? Yes. No one. No. Now, Mark, I want you to back up just a little bit. Take a couple steps back, okay? Okay? And stand like I stand, okay? <laughs> now, Mark, you do have a desire. Mark has an average of Bs in school now. Is that correct, Mark? Yep. Mark, what, what, what Mark do you want, Mark? A's. <laughs> Mark wants A's in school. Mark, can you see yourself with a report card with A's on it? Yes. Now, Mark, when you go home, I want you to sit down with your mom. Your mom is here, isn't that right? Yes. And I want you, to, you and your mom to get a blank report card at school. When is the next report card, Mark? When do you get the next one? I don't know. Do you get it in the next couple of months, December, something like that? 
I want you to get a blank report card when you go home. And you take it home, you and mom, and you sit down, and what you do is you fill in the marks that you want this year. And then you put it up beside your bed. And you actually see those marks, not only in your mind, but before you go to bed every night, you see the marks that you want already on the report card long before you get the report card. Can you do that, Mark? Yes. You can do that? Yep. Mark, is there anything you want to say to everybody here? Hello. Hello? <laughs> Mark, I want to thank you for being such a pro, okay? Mark, how about a little hug before you go? Okay. Thanks, Mark. Now, you see, why can we not sit down with, say, kids in school and fill out the report card before the term begins? We do it in business. We do it in everything else. Why not set up an environment or an atmosphere of expectation? All right. Now, I'm going to ask you that before you leave here today, like at lunch, you take this book with you. You take some time today, and you sit down with page 33, and you list in your personal life, in your family life, and in your business life, all the things that you really want. And then beside it, put down whether or not you have been expecting them. Now, why haven't we been expecting them? Because we allow the demand and we allow the risk to control whether or not we're going to do it. Don't allow others. Don't allow circumstance. Don't allow it to control the way you feel about you. You determine your mental ruling state. Now, would you switch back, please, to page 31? I want to finish this so we can stay on time here. Now, there is one line just below the first paragraph on page 31. What are you doing to increase your income? I could have said, what are you doing to increase your relationships? What are you doing to increase, we'll say, your well-being? What are you doing to increase your productivity? What are you doing to increase these things, to improve them? Well, if your answer to this question is nothing, or if you are just beginning to think seriously about what you could do, you have probably not yet grasped the ideas presented in the previous chapters. You should be aware that the chapters in this book resemble the individual pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. And each chapter is related one to the other in such a way that if we put them together, we can see the entire picture. The entire picture. I had an individual come up to me one day at a seminar and said, you know, Canary, he said, this is all well and good and I'd like to go ahead and do it. But he said, do you realize that by the time I reach this goal, I want to set, he said, I'm 50 now. He said, and for me to reach this goal, I'd be 58. I said, well, how old will you be if you don't reach it? <laughs> Come on, think about it now. I mean the kind of thinking that we get involved in. Einstein said that all conditions and all circumstances in our lives, he said they are a result of a certain level of thinking. Now, he said, if we want to change the conditions and the circumstance, we've got to change the level of thinking that's responsible for it we got to change the level of thinking that's responsible for it. 
which is our expectations must move to a new dimension. In this last paragraph, since you are now well into the heart of the book, I would ask you to pay particular close attention to the ideas which follow, so you can use them to successfully tie all the pieces together. You will soon discover that if the ideas in this chapter are applied with intelligence, that expectation can be a triggering mechanism which attracts into your life every good that you desire. Do you know, if you have something you desire today, which you do, do you know that puts you in touch with it? You're hooked up to it? It, it? You're in harmony with it right now? But it's your expectation that moves it into your life. We will always gravitate towards that which we most secretly love, be it base of beautiful or a mixture of both. For into your hand will be placed the exact result of your ideal, your vision. Into your hand will be placed the exact result of your vision and your ideal. So expectation is the triggering mechanism. However, if you do not exercise extreme caution, expectation can also turn just as rapidly into a destructive, lethal enemy. As people go around expecting bad things to happen to them. Oh, I don't want to do that. What if this happens? Therefore, you must be cognizant of how you are exercising this invisible but powerful force. We believe then that you already understand that you cannot have wealth in your material world until you first visualize the wealth in your mind. Have you ever considered that the highest, the most noble, and the most excellent thing about you is formless in nature? That the highest, the most excellent, the most noble thing about you is formless in nature. But what does this really mean? It means that before any one of us can ever begin to overcome the poverty which surrounds us in our external world, we must first conquer the impoverishment that is buried deep within ourselves. <coughs> impoverishment meaning many areas of our life. Some people are emotionally bankrupt emotionally. Now what we're going to do is Bob is going to come up and take you through the rest of this chapter. And that will start on page 32. And this will show us exactly how this expectation releases or moves this energy into what is called form. And no one will do that better than Bob Proctor. Thank you. Flip over to page 32. Now, rather than read that page, I want to suggest that you just listen and mentally go along with me. I'm going to attempt to paint a picture in your mind. I want you to image an elderly couple that are living in the backwoods. They've been there all their life. They know nothing except what's in their own immediate environment. Now, this elderly couple have never had an experience of using electricity. All they've ever illuminated their home with is a wax candle or a kerosene lamp. They've had travelers that drop by periodically that have talked about this idea of electricity, but they have never used it. 
In the latter years of their life, they're transported into a small town. And to their amazement, this house is lighted with little eight candle bulbs. Now, keep in mind, all they've ever used is the elect is the wax candle or the kerosene lamps. Now, to their amazement, they have this electricity. It would truly be magic to them. Now, I want you to imagine if you've just, I don't know, maybe purchased a microwave oven that has a sensory touch. Just the energy coming from your finger will activate the switch, and it would cook a hot dog faster than you could pour a glass of milk. We stand and we look at those things even when we're using them when we're alone. And we laugh, we think, wow, you know. <laughs> Meaning, it's not able to talk to us, it's not able to laugh with us, but we're amused by this concept. Well, this couple, I would imagine, would go over and they'd touch the switch. Remember, light to them was fire up to that point. And they're amazed that it doesn't burn them. And they just flip the switch. The light's gone. It's dark again. I would imagine they'd look at this. Wow. Isn't that something? <laughs> Think of it. Well, try and experience this in your mind. They have never, ever seen anything like this before. They'd do it together, and then when they were alone, they'd wander over, and they'd flip that switch again. See, their expectation would be that of fire, and every time they get near light, they expect it to be burned. But now they're finding that this doesn't burn them. It's much better to read by if they had a book. They could sit and they'd read it so much easier with this new light than they would have with the old. Well, you know, electricity is very, very much like this power that we use in many respects. If you're going to work with electricity, you must work from a higher to a lower potential. Any engineer, any electrician will be quick to tell you that if you attempt to work from a lower to a higher potential, you'll get no use out of the electricity, certainly no positive use. They'll also tell you that electricity can cook a person's dinner or it can cook the person. And the truth is, we have used it for both on occasion. You can use the electricity to freeze food, or you can use electricity to fry the food. It can be used one way or another. One day after this elderly couple had become used to this new concept, and they can turn the light on without any fear of being burned. And they're used to these little eight-candle-powered bulbs. 
a traveler knocks on their door. The traveler is holding a light bulb. And he's saying, those little bulbs are no good anymore. There's not enough light from them. The illumination, it's limited. What you really need is one of these 60 candle powered bulbs. Those little eight candle powered bulbs are really next to useless. The elderly couple, of course, doesn't really know what the traveler's talking about. Why, he said, you know that one of these bulbs would illuminate this room to a greater degree than all of these bulbs put together. He said, let me show you. And he goes around and he loosens all the little bulbs but one. Then he takes the one remaining bulb that's burning and he takes it right out of the socket and he puts in the 60 candle powered bulb and wham, to their amazement, that entire room is illuminated, illuminated like daylight. They have difficulty believing that so much light could come from one bulb. Now I want you to imagine that traveler attempting to tell that elderly couple that the magic is not in the bulb, that the power had always been there. They'd say, oh, no way. The magic's in the bulb. You go back to the electrician or the engineer, and they'll tell you that the only limits placed on this power that we call electricity that is illuminating this stage, the only limits placed on it are the limits that's placed on the form through which it flows. Namely, the transformer or the bulb. Likewise, the only limit that's placed on this power are the limits that's placed on the form through which it flows. And if you want to illuminate your life to a greater degree, all that is necessary is for you to build a bigger idea, understand the laws of this power, impregnate this part of your personality with that bigger idea, and you will see your results change just as fast as the light in that room changed. I'm going to give you an excellent example. At the break, I had a gentleman come over and talk to me. He's sitting right over here on my left. And he showed me something. I read you a letter yesterday, or in an earlier lesson, where Joanne White from Kansas City told me about her son going to the seminar in 1976 and the change that took place. That letter was dated February 1986. There's this gentleman sitting on the side here. Do you want to stand up for a minute, please? He came to the seminar in February 1986. What were you earning Prior to that, Al? Approximately $18,000. $18,000. I'm going to relate that to the little eight-candle powered bulb. Al, approximately what are you earning today per year? Approximately $500,000. $500,000. 
He didn't even mess around with the 60 candle power bulb. He shot right up to 100. Now, I referred to uh, my son's manager yesterday. This man has the same manager. And I was mentioning that your environment is vitally important. See, not only is Brian fortunate enough to have the same manager, he's fortunate enough to have an associate like Al. There are 20,000 agents selling real estate in Al's company. Is that correct, Al? That's within Remax International. There's 20,000. Correct. How many of the 20,000, Al, now think of the way I'm asking you the question, of 20,000, how many of them sell more in a year than you do? About 13. He stands number 14 out of 20,000 salespeople. Many of these people would be in the business for a number of years. Al's been in the business since February 1986. How many in Canada sell more than you, Al? Eight. Sorry, seven. Changes daily, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> when you handed this to me at the break, and that's when he gave it to me, what did you tell me made the difference? Just changing, changing my attitude and uh, following some of the things that I've picked up through your seminars. You came to a seminar shortly after you started. Exactly. And he took these ideas, and look what he's done with them. Give him another hand. You know, I mentioned early in the book that reading and memorizing this information does absolutely no good. I've been in this business a long, long time. I've been in it just about as long as Brian's been living. And I have watched many people come in and go out of this business. Many of them could talk very intelligently about this, but only a few ever really learned how to use it. You've got to stick with this. And you have to take these lessons serious. They sound a little silly at times, but it's like the little young guy from Burlington that I mentioned, Tim Krochuk, he said, although this stuff may sound hokey, it works. You see, Al went from an $18,000 idea to a $500,000 idea. This power doesn't recognize difference. It just takes whatever you give to it and turns it into form. I was just reading from Belief in the Torchbearer series. You just saw young Mark. He obviously believed what John suggested to him. We received a call here just recently in our office. Mark's last report card, he received 82. 82 in his last report card. Al Spaziri obviously believed he had a $500,000 idea locked up within him. You see, Mark was always capable of getting the 82, and Al was always capable of earning the 500000 a year. You're capable of doing what you want. You believe, and you can do it.
Is there a better position in your life? Is there a better report card in your life? Believe. You'll get it. Pass the torch, one to another. Carry the flame as far as you can. Pass the torch, sister to brother. The journey is yours, the journey is mine. I hope you enjoyed this video. We put a lot of good information up here and it causes everything in your life to get better. If you'd like us to notify you every time we put a new video up, hit subscribe and then turn on notifications. Check out all our videos and we will notify you when we put a new one up. Antonio T. Smith Jr. and I'm excited to be with you and I want to take this opportunity to tell you what you get what this pathbender is about can you really change your life can I change your life can you bend your path and I want to talk about four things that help you understand how I've come up with pathbender and how the idea of actually bending your path is not only realistic, but it's realistic for you. The first thing I want to tell you is I can't teach you anything because you already know everything. There is something so different about you. Something about you is so fundamentally different that if I disassemble you and put you back together, you won't have life. You don't work like the cameras recording me or the lights around the studio. Something about you is different. So if you hear me say anything in these four things that I want to tell you, the first one being you already know everything. If it feels like you're remembering, if it feels good to your soul, if it feels well with your being, that is how you know it is true. And the first thing that I'm telling you, it is true that you know what I'm about to say, you've just forgotten. There are distortions over you and these truths that have escaped you are finding their ways back to you and I am just your guide back to your compass. It's the first thing. So in truth, something about you understands you can bend your path. Maybe you haven't thought of it, or maybe you've been thinking about it and now it is here. And it is my most gracious honor to be the person you're listening to and to be the soul that's intertwined with your destiny. The second thing I want to tell you is the principle Wu Wei. You find it in the Tao, Taoism. It is this idea of not forcing anything. My friends, life is not a life of manipulation. 
It's more of a life of meditation. Manifestation does not go hand in hand with manipulation. And if you are forcing your path, you're on the wrong path. If things are not coming to you in the fastest, quickest, most harmonious way possible, if your life seems as if you are swimming up a stream, going against the grain, flowing through cement, if you have money, but no well relationships, or you have well relationships, but no money, if you are spiritual, but broke, and if you are religious, but can't make ends meet, you are manipulating your current path and you're not bending it to your will. Pathbender is a concept I've come up with. I am a big fan of the Wachowskis. And my favorite movie by them is Cloud Atlas. My second favorite movie now is The Matrix, which was my first, but now. And at the end of The Matrix Part 1, Neo bends reality to himself after he believes. And that's, that's basically the premise of Pathbender. The truth is, that's not science fiction. The idea of bending your path has been here for millennia. Bruce Lee told you, be like water, my friend. This is what it is, okay? I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. Now you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Now water can flow or it can crash. Be water, my friend. Now, all these things are important. So this idea of Wu Wei is about you not forcing. And Pathbender is you finding your own path and you're not forcing the events you want. You're not manipulating the events you want. You are creating the events you want. You are the greatest creator to ever live on this planet and no one can create better than you, not now or ever. The third thing I want to tell you, and this may come as an offensive shock to some, but you are God. You are this life-giving force and I want you to think about it. You're the only species on this planet that can create something out of nothing. For, the, for theologians, way back in antiquity, there's a Latin phrase called ex nihilo. It is a phrase that means out of nothing and how God created this world ex nihilo out of nothing. And the only life force on this planet that can take nothing and then make a masterpiece is God. But you've been doing that since the day you've been born. Take a piece of paper that has nothing there and out of nothing, J.K. Rowling wrote Harry Potter.
Robert Greene wrote 48 Laws of Power. Out of nothing, the Steven Spielberg produced movies. Out of nothing, this Denzel create characters that we remember forever. This idea of out of nothing. And you're the only one who can do that. Goldfish can't, lions cannot, just humans. You are God. You can find that in Christian texts in which in the book of Mark, the writer exclaims a question by the disciples as they turn towards Jesus. And they ask, what manner of man is this? That even the winds and the waves obey him. Now, this isn't Christian only thing. You don't have to be Christian, Jew, Muslim to get this. The writer is explaining that even the people the ascended master Jesus was with on a daily basis had no idea who he was. He was not a man. He was God in man's flesh. And I say the same thing to you. You're not a man. You're not a woman. You perform miracles on a daily basis. What manner of man are you that even blank pieces of paper respect your creative power? And the last thing I want to tell you is Pathbender is about becoming a force, a force to be reckoned with. Scientifically, there's a formula for force. You can look it up yourself. Force equals mass times acceleration. We, we must talk for a little bit. In order to become a force, you need mass multiplied by acceleration. In order for you to become a force, you need energy in one place over and over to become multiplied by the acceleration, the speeding up of something to become a force. Say it again. In order to become a force, Einstein says, all mass is energy in one place times the speed of light twice. You know that as E equals MC squared. Einstein scientifically understood and explained to us that mass is simply thought idea over and over and over, a thought. What is the greatest form of energy? Thought energy. A thought over and over and over, moving at the speed of light twice squared, over and over in one place. And once you keep putting energy in one place, in one place, in one place, in one place, the energy ceases to be something invisible and becomes a tangible piece of matter. This is why it's hard to destroy something that exists. Energy can never be created. 
and it can never be destroyed. First law of thermodynamics, because once you put energy in a place over and over and over and over again, it takes infinity to destroy what has been created. So in order to become a force, someone like me must teach you how to put your energy, harness your energy into one place over and over and over until it becomes something tangible. And in truth, you have been doing this your entire life. You just haven't been doing it deliberately for your benefit. But everything around you is your thought energy manifested into physical form. The second part of this equation, acceleration, is the idea that when you get this piece of matter, and you believe in it so much, you see it so much, it is so, it is so tangible that it gains its own speed. And then you put speed on top of that speed because everything in the world is in motion already in vibration. So this idea of acceleration is this idea that the more you speed what you created up, when you multiply that by what you created, you become a force. It's the basis of Pathbender. Mass times acceleration equals force. And many of you are attempting to become a force on this planet, but the problem is you haven't attracted someone like me yet to teach you how to deliberately create the mass you want in your life and how to deliberately accelerate that so you can be a force. Be like water, my friends. You can go to the event page and catch all of what's included. But I wanted to stand before you and tell you about the intent. I wanted you to feel my energy. I wanted you to see my face. Energy doesn't lie. If you believe like I believe, if there is something about you right now that I am awakening, we are at the same vibration, consider. I wanted you to catch my energy and I wanted you to know your time is here and you have the power to bend your reality. Join me. Become a pathbender. I've been looking for you. Antonio T. Smith Jr. You can plant better. You can dominate. Mm -hmm.